bouncing out of context. Thank you, dear. I'm not a good listener, and I always need attention, so I'm in charge of my room, right? So, honor your mama and your daddy and your boss. <coughs> Waste time on low potential people. <coughs> you wanna go to lunch sometime? <coughs> hey, yeah, go, get out of here. Go, move. <coughs> I'm never like that. Oh, uh, well. <coughs> and I have no shame about that. <coughs> <coughs> hey, that's good material, man. That's really funny. Well, that was out of context. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that sweet? Um, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. Uh, my name is Ashamed, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today uh, to, to worship Jesus. Uh, hey, Auditorium 2, you guys are beautiful. Auditor or Auditorium 1, you guys are beautiful. Auditorium 2, this is the first time I've been in here with other humans in like 17 months, so it's really nice to, to be in here uh, with you guys. <clears throat> um, Facebook land and YouTube land, you guys are also Beautiful, thank you very much for joining us there. Um, if you are here and you're visiting, we're very happy to have you. Please go meet some new friends out at the Welcome Center, which is over in the Commons area near Auditorium 1, and they can answer all the Fellowship Greenville-related questions that you might have. And if you call this church home and you are a member or a regular, we love you guys so much. We are so, so thankful for you. Please go by the Next Steps table, also in the Commons beside Auditorium 1. And they can help you get further involved, whether it's a mission or a service opportunity or whether it's community groups or, or whatever it may be. Go bother our friends over there. Now, <clears throat> if you've been here at all this summer, you know that we are in the middle of a series called The Words We Use, How God's Word Shapes Our Words. That I don't know about you, it's been really powerful and convicting for me. Like, I don't want to preach about it because I don't have to own it. Kind of, kind of powerful. <clears throat> And so we're going to continue that today. And what we're doing is each week we're seeing how Scripture should inform and shape and change the way that we talk, which might not seem like a big deal because we just talk all day, every day. But Jesus' little brother, James, said that the tongue is like a spark that can set an entire forest on fire. He says the tongue is like a, a rudder on the Titanic that can take the ship any direction, the entire ship. Jesus himself says that the mouth only speaks out of the overflow of the heart, which is terrifying, right? Proverbs 18 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And so this summer, we're not talking about a peripheral idea or a marginal practicality. We're talking about how our words give and take life. And I know that I don't normally think about my words like that, but the Bible does, so I need to pay attention, Additionally, think about how absolutely backwards it is to be people of life, people of the resurrected king, and yet our words so deaf. That is so backwards and so messed up. So we need to pay attention. Like, like if we're trying to juggle and manage our words on our own without the firm foundation of God's word, it will not be awesome, and people will end up hurt. And so... In the words of Jesus' little brother James, brothers and sisters, this should not be to be people of the resurrected king and your words so death. That can't be. And so today we get to keep thinking a little bit more about what it looks like for our words to be animated by God's words. 
Charlie's couple of introductory messages were super stellar. His thoughts, his sermons on words of confession were really good. In a couple weeks, we'll talk about words of worship and words of witness. But today, we get to talk about words of conflict. Words of conflict is what we're going to talk about today. Now, I don't know what enters your mind or crosses the horizon of your brain when you think about conflict, but if you profess to be a follower of Jesus, you have to think about words of conflict. You have to. Jesus did not say, blessed are the peacekeepers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. And that means that we have to explore the fragility of Christian conflict resolution. Also, conflict always includes words. Like, you can't do blessed are the peacemakers with just Let's just take some time apart, just some space and and a few hugs scattered in between. That's not going to do it. It is not going to fix it. So it demands, Scripture demands that we keenly consider what we say when it comes to conflict. I'll never forget about 10 years ago, teaching at the school right right down the road, go Sabres and having Monday afternoon faculty meetings and occasionally rolling my eyes and going, this could have been an email, and one Monday in specific, walking in and being told, hey, for the next month, we're going to watch these videos on conflict resolution from this Ivy League professor with a PhD in sociological and psychological behavior, and I tried really hard to find the guy's name, and I couldn't, but he had a really big, huge mustache and really huge glasses, really smart, brain falling out of his ears kind of guy, right? So this guy stands up on the screen, and I'm mildly intrigued, but the dude starts talking, and it was an instant snore fest, like heal all insomnia kind of snore fest. And I was just like, bro, your tone and your pace are, it's just terrible. This is awful. But I had to pay attention because I didn't have an iPhone yet. And so I'm just sitting there. And, and after a few minutes, I'm like, oh, wow. Oh, this guy, th- this is important. And so <laughs> up, at, up at 10 minutes, I'm, I'm like vigorously taking notes. And I still have all those notes. I, I looked at them all this past week. Um, and he started talking about expectations in conflict, like what you want to get out of it, like what do you want to gain from conflict. He talked about context for conflict, like <clears throat> the environment of conflict and uh, of conflict and how that will drastically sh- uh, shape the content of the conflict. Like you know a sentence if it's a couple and they get into a fight at a party, like that's next level. Or you've seen the parents in the grocery store losing it at their kid in the grocery store aisle. It's like, oh wow, let's pray about this. Like it's, it's a big deal. <clears throat> this guy also talked about how avoidance in conflict is a lose-lose, competition in conflict is a win-lose, accommodation in conflict is a lose win, and compromise in conflict is actually nobody wins and nobody loses. So this guy was saying really interesting stuff. He had really unique things to say about body language and how our bodies say words that are sometimes truer than the words that we speak with our mouths. He talked about listening. He actually talked about the words themselves and not just their content, but their, like their tone and their volume and their pace. Um, I always say in premarital counseling, that if you are a follower of Jesus and you raise your voice in conflict, you're probably already wrong no matter what your point is because it means you don't have self-control and self-control is the fruit of the Spirit and you're not being led by the Spirit in conflict. And you guys are like, no. And people will come up to me and they'll say, well, what if I'm just loud? And I'll try to politely say, well, what if that's just a bad excuse? So deal with it, right? I, I don't know how to, like... That makes sense to to me at least. Here's my point. The actual words we use is not the most important thing. It's also how we use them. 
But the bottom line for this guy in all of his conflict research and all of his conflict resolution training is that there are two realities that make up every single conflict. There are two things that intertwine to comprise a formal disagreement. And we get to draw on a little board this morning. I'm sorry if you can see the blackness. It's a little, it's a little uh, dirty, but we'll, we'll just we'll overlook that. Every single conflict includes two things. Every conflict includes an issue, and every conflict includes a relationship. And each one of these gets its own axis this morning, the issue axis and the relationship axis. Now, in conflict, there are people who try to preserve the relationship so hard that they don't care about the issue and they act dismissive of the issue and they're willing to back down on the issue to keep the relationship intact. But also, <clears throat> there are people who are like, I'm going to break your arm to twist it to come to my side and my opinion on this thing even though it might not be right because I am dead set. So buckle up. We're going, hey, I don't care if the relationship takes a hit. Come with me. Get on board. <clears throat> You're, we're coming to my place on this view on this issue. Now, I don't know where you might be on this whole uh, chart. Sometimes when I draw this for people, I'll, I'll draw it like this and be like, well, just think about where you are on the conflict resolution chart and like do you, which side do you lean towards, right? <clears throat> also, think about it. If the issue is about money and the relationship is your marriage, that is a lot different than <clears throat> if the issue is your food and the relationship is your waiter, all right? That's very temporal. This other conflict might stick around for a while, so it's already going to nuance your approach to the thing. Because again, some conflicts, depending on the nature of the issue and the relationship, some conflicts are going to stick around for a bit. Also, while we're here, whenever I do uh, couples counseling, I tell them every single marriage clash comes down to basically <clears throat> five issues. God, money, sex, family, politics. You're going to have a fight about one of five issues. God, money, sex, family, politics. And somebody asked me one time, well, what, about, what about communication? I go, yes, communication about God, money, sex, family, politics. The words we use about those five things will make up every fight you ever have, right? <clears throat> now, here's the deal. When we Think about these things. The question is, where do you land on this grid? Do you lean more towards the relationship side, or do you lean more towards the issue side? I'm going to try to draw a midline here. No, that, that wasn't very good. You know what? I'm going to try again. How do I do this? Boom. Let's try it again. This is like faux geometry. Now, guys, that's decent. That's pretty decent right there. <clears throat> so the question is, where do you fall above or below the midline when it comes to handling conflict? And you might lean differently depending on whether the relationship is like your boss, like your mama, or if it's another student, or whether the issue is a political thing, a theological thing, or a financial thing. <clears throat> but the reality is you're generally going to fall below or above the midline when it comes to conflict resolution. And maybe you could be really, really daring and stupid, and you can ask a family or a, a family member or a friend or your spouse, hey, where do I land on this? And then you can uselessly defend yourself and it'll be like Netflix watching it, right? <clears throat> so if you really want to be bold, ask somebody where they think you land on this thing. Now, when I do premarital counseling, I ask uh, fiance A and fiance B to pick where they think the other person lands. And it's a, it's a great conversation going, okay, this is kind of where you start with this. So let's, let's move from there and see what else we can consider. So... <clears throat> Where do you plot yourself might be a good thing to think about. But now, let's take it one step further. What kind of words do you use that come along with where you land on this chart? If you lean more towards the issue, 
you're going to say things like, hey, hey, you can't argue with the facts, buddy, all right? It is what it is. You'll say, well, well, actually, you're wrong, and I, I, I just guess that you'll have to, to get over it. You, you arrogantly say, hey, hey, it is not my fault that you can't deal with reality, right? Re- just really gracious words here. Or in the words of Colonel Jessup to Tom Cruise, you can't handle the truth. That's exactly what we're talking about. <clears throat> Ephesians 4 says, speak the truth in love, not beat them with the truth like a club. And this team says, hey, it's not my problem that you can't deal with reality. And if you know what? If you talk like that in conflict, look, no matter the relationship, you are going to belittle the relational intimacy and connection that God designed for you. <clears throat> You're going to spit on it. Now, on the other side of things, <clears throat> if you lean more towards the preservation of the relationship in conflict, you're going to say things like, oh, no, 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 uh, no, no, it's totally okay. Just whatever you want. Oh, no, no, it, that's fine. It's fine. It doesn't matter. You're going to say, seriously, whatever you decide, whatever makes you happy, no, it's no problem. I, I, I don't care anyway. No, 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 I'm sorry, right? No, 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 it's, it's me. It's my problem. <clears throat> or maybe worst of all, you just won't say anything, right? Now, while there might be a genuine dose of grace or just like a chilled personality behind those kinds of words, a lot of times these words can include, listen, a very deep-rooted fear, and they might even include a denial of the reality of the issue itself, and it might even include an insecurity that the relationship could crumble at any point, and that's why you just don't say anything. And this person, when they hear, speak the truth in love, they rush, (coughs) rush towards the love side of the equation, sometimes to the neglect of the truth side of the equation. So, where do you land? Now, no matter where you land on this thing, I hope you're feeling the tension that you need people on the other side of the midline. You need them. And with that tension, I hope you're, feel, you're feeling the responsibility. <clears throat> Maybe you've <clears throat> felt it as we've read Proverbs together as a church the past few weeks. This has just been a mountain of convicting. Listen, listen. Whoever guards their mouth preserves their life. Dang it. Right? right? Whoever restrains their words has knowledge. All right, I'll see you later. Right? This is what Proverbs, a man of understanding will keep silent. <laughs> Why? Why? When words are many, transgression is not lacking. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. <clears throat> Death and life are in the power of the tongue. All that to say, I'm, I think that the Bible is whispering to us, hey, 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 more rides on your words than you could ever imagine, especially when they pass through the fire of conflict. So we have to ask, what should Christian conflict resolution look like? Like, how are we supposed to walk the tightrope of speaking the truth in love? How should we use our words for healing and life rather than hurting and death? (coughs) And because your life will never be totally free from conflict, How you talk about it, how you talk in it, and how you talk through it is a litmus test as to whether or not you're trusting God or yourself to manage relationships and issues in your life. So the question today is, what does healthy conflict look like for followers of Jesus? That is what we have to think about this morning and hopefully think about every day. What does healthy conflict look like for followers of Jesus? And today we will be helped along in our, with our question by John chapter 1. If you would like to go ahead and get there in your Bibles, John chapter 1. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> I know we finished John just about a month ago, <clears throat> but it's been a while. <clears throat> 
since we were at the beginning. So why not go all the way back to the beginning, especially because I think we can find some powerful answers to this question. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, we will look at John's prologue, his introduction. John 1, 1 through 18. And plundering around in here will help us consider what shape should healthy biblical conflict resolution take. John chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, and his name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And this word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, and he cried out, Oh, this is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, yet grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, yet he has made him known. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, before we wade into this, when we do like topical sermons, this is an excuse for me to do book commercials, so you have to uh, tolerate three book commercials really quickly that will continue to help us think about words and conflict. The first is A Gentle Answer, Our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them by Scott Sauls. If you have never read Scott Sauls, go steal from Jeff Bezos and make it happen. Get it off of Amazon, anything he's written. This book is incredible <clears throat> in that it's a great conversation piece for our, our summer series. Scott actually went to school in Fur- uh, at Furman in Greenville, so we kind of have to like him a little bit. Highly recommend Scott Sauls' work, especially this book, A Gentle Answer. Next, my friend Christy at Grace Church down the road has written A Woman's Words, and it has been super, super duper helpful to look at in preparation for this message and in just general thinking about this summer. Christy is super intelligent, and she's an excellent thinker. And dudes, hey, bros, you are not off the hook. Go buy this and say it's for your wife, and then read it, and then give it to her. Really, really convicting and powerful um, A Woman's Words. Lastly, one of my favorite people in the whole world, our very own Reed Lehman. This is his book, Are Those the Words You Meant to Use?, Uh, The subtitle should just be uh, no, Um, but the subtitle is Keeping Marital Conflict Safe, Productive, and Biblical. And this is specifically about uh, words and conflict in marriage. And Reed did mine and Sarah's premarital counseling 15 years ago. And Sarah is so thankful to the uh, extent that I actually heed his wisdom. So thanks a lot, Reed. Um, So go check out those books, any or all of them, for further encouragement uh, for these summer conversations that we're having. Now, back to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, 
Let's just state the absolute obvious. Jim, great passage. Loved that we kept going back to it when we were preaching through John. Uh, Also, Jim, has zero to do with conflict resolution. Um, Thank you for that observation. Well aware, well aware of that. And I agree with you. Completely valid thought. And on one level, you're right. This text has zero to do with uh, principles by which we should resolve a dispute. This is not, I should have picked Matthew 5, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. That's what, this text is not that. But let me put a different frame around John's prologue. Let me put a different frame around it, and it might change the way that we're looking at it. And this is the first way that healthy biblical conflict resolution should take shape. Right here it is. Look at the screens. Look at the screens. Because we're meant to be image bearers and be and do like God, the ultimate question, the ultimate question is not how should I handle this conflict? Rather, the ultimate question is how does God handle conflict? And the answer is Jesus. Likewise, the first practical question is not what words should I use in conflict? Rather, we should ask, what words does God use in conflict? Sunday school, the answer is Jesus. He is God's word in a person. So this passage, in a way, is completely about conflict. The most supreme conflict in the entire universe, the conflict of sin and death. And a word for that is darkness. Look at verse 5. Look, look, look. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't overcome it, grab a hold of it, or understand it. The darkness doesn't win in the conflict of light and dark. It doesn't. So, really simply put, Jesus is how God handles the biggest conflict of all. And because you can't do conflict without words, Jesus is called the Word. Now, this is like WWJD. This is WWGS. What would God say? He says, Christ. This is the point of the whole summer, that God's Word has to change the way we use our words. And in the Bible... It's heart change that leads to word change. So yes, yes, when we say God's word, we mean scripture. But as the incarnate word, Jesus is the hero of the story that is the written word. So climactically, it is God's communication in Christ. It is God's communication that is Christ that should give life to our words so that our words can give life to others. So here's the deal. The first move, the very first move in Christian conflict resolution is to think about how God himself handles conflict. Not, okay, what do I need to do? What's my reflex move? The first move in Christian conflict resolution is to think, how does God handle conflict? And he does so with Jesus. That's exactly how he does it. Now, you're like, okay, I see what you did there. Maybe John won. Okay, maybe. But listen, I want to show you how this has implication for your life. That's what I want to do. If you enter into a space of conflict and your mind and heart are racing, what do I say, what do I do, how do I preserve the relationship, how do I show them that they're wrong, how do I, <clears throat> whatever questions are spinning in your head, like what, how can I get gain out of this, how can they think that I'm better, how can, I'll go ahead and tell you right now, those questions are wrong and not because of the content of the question. There might actually be a good, okay, how can I get through this? <clears throat> but they're wrong because that's not the starting point if you're a follower of Jesus. The starting point for a follower of Jesus, when you enter into a space of conflict, is this, all right, God, What do you want to teach me in this? All right, all right, Lord, how do you want to grow me to make me like Jesus? The word became, how do you want to grow me to be like Jesus in and through this conflict? Lord, how can my words in the space of this disagreement point to you rather than me? How do you want me to reflect you in this? How can I deal with this thing in a way that makes my own heart and the hearts of others involved pay more attention to Jesus than to me? 
And if you call yourself a Christian, you have to start thinking like this. I have to start thinking like this. The disagreements, please get this, the disagreements we face, the conflicts that come knocking are way more about learning to trust Jesus than about you winning. Way more. It's not about whether I win or come out on top in this argument. It's about am I learning to trust God in the middle of this thing. Now, this takes us to another way that our passage speaks to our question about what does healthy biblical conflict resolution look like? Look down at the absolutely monumental verse 14. <clears throat> the word became flesh and dwelt among us. <clears throat> now, this idea is staggering on a billion levels. Uh, it has no other parallel in any other religion or worldview. And for our discussion today, it is pragmatically staggering. <clears throat> and here's how I want to get to that for us practically. I want us to think about what John does not say here in verse 14. He does not say <coughs> the word became a voicemail that we could listen to. He doesn't say the word became a letter from a far country. He doesn't say the word became a diagnosis of the conflict that we should feel bad about. He doesn't say the word became a YouTube video that we can go and watch whenever we have some flex time. And one day in the new heavens and the new earth when God's world <coughs> is completely redeemed and remade and it's brimming with physicality and resurrection and love and joy and hope and service, when it's brimming with all of those things, we will not FaceTime with Jesus, okay? That's not going to happen. The Word did not become a Zoom call to log on to thank God. Screens aren't and never will be the zenith of intimacy, period. Rather, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this means that when God speaks in conflict, he enters into the gross, nasty mess. The incarnation of Jesus means that he does not address our problems from a distance like, hey, hey, you're wrong. No, no, no. The word became flesh means he gets up right in the middle. He pulls up a chair right in the middle of it. That's what he does. He gets right in the middle to sense and know and feel and understand them the way that we do, all of our problems. He is not scared to get his hands dirty, and we are when we approach conflict. So if you look at the darkness of verse 5, if you look at the ignorance, the not knowing of verse 10, if you look at the flesh and blood and the grossness of verse 13, Jesus came to live dead center right in the middle of all of that, and here's what that means for us. <clears throat> it's exactly what this means for us. Before it seeks to directly address an issue or appease a relationship, biblical conflict is incarnational and seeks to understand what others are feeling and thinking. It's the old St. Francis of Assisi prayer, Lord, let me understand more than be understood. I hate that prayer because that's just a shot to my pride. <clears throat> that's what this is. That's what this is. Before it seeks to address, directly address an issue or appease a relationship, biblical conflict is incarnational, and it seeks to understand, to identify with other people and exactly what they are feeling and thinking and going through. This is the truest and purest form of resolving, resolving conflict. And it happens most wonderfully when we are finding unique ways to enter the world and enter the pain and enter the perspective of someone else rather than trying to bend their wills to adhere to our opinions. Like, <clears throat> we think, look, we think the true messiness of conflict is like the yelling and the name-calling and the backstabbing and the not-budging and the belligerence. And I'll go ahead and tell you, that's just usually a really grown-up version of a, of a whiny child who's like, give me my way. Don't do that. <clears throat> That's childish. That's not Christ-like maturity. 
The true messiness of conflict is the humility and sacrifice required to slowly enter someone else's world to grasp where they're coming from. That's the true messiness, the true incarnationality of biblical conflict resolution. That's Christ. That's verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt, he tabernacled among us right in the midst of us. So, what does this incarnational approach to conflict resolution have to do with our words? Thanks for asking. I think, it, I think we can go several different places here, <clears throat> but I, I want to go to one specific implication, and I think it means that we need to become better question askers so that we can see things from another person's point of view. Like If you read the Gospels, Jesus is master, master question asker at every term. And so, for us, in order to really get a grip on where somebody's coming from, we need to be artists at, listen, even-toned, open-ended questions. Not, who do you think you are? Not, how dare you? No, that's not what I'm talking about. Those aren't the questions that we need to ask. Even-toned, open-ended questions, guys. Even-toned, open-ended questions. I got a cross-country phone call from Washington State last week about something that happened, something that was said six years ago that is now resurfacing again. And it was a very direct, immediate conflict about um, who said, you said, he said, she said, etc. And what I wanted to do on the phone was just say, just, just, just stop, that's garbage. You know that's not how it went down at all. <clears throat> you know I don't have any problems with this person. Just ch chill, just stop, please. Like the prideful part of me <clears throat> wanted to just go hard like that. That's what it, I wanted to do, but instead, I literally had my phone in my hand. I had to hit the mute button, take a big deep breath, <clears throat> and pray. I hit the mute button again and wait until there was a spot in the conversation and just ask a question that let me get to the person's why. Why are they calling me with this? I had to understand that. So when we're thinking about <clears throat> asking <clears throat> even-toned open-ended questions. They never sound like, how dare you and what do you think you're doing? That's not what they sound like. But listen, when you disagree with him about how you guys need to respond to his sister, you don't need to attack because I'm a woman, I understand. I don't, what you need to do is you need to go, hey, based on how you're processing this, what do you think is probably the best advantage and maybe one disadvantage of, of what you're thinking and how you're feeling about this? And if she thinks the money needs to be spent in a completely different way for something else and you couldn't disagree more, you need to go, hey, I really want to understand why, why you want this and explain it to me like you would to your mom or, or to one of your good friends. I really want to understand. And if you don't have a longing to truly understand, then you're not like Christ in the conflict and you should just stop, period, right? And I'm not saying it's easy. <clears throat> it's an art form to learn to ask questions like this. And they can sound a dozen different ways. <clears throat> but... I do know that this question-asking approach is a way to practice the incarnation in the middle of conflict. <clears throat> and this takes us to kind of the, the last part of, of our answer. Let's look at verse 14 one more time. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only unique Son from the Father, and this is my favorite phrase in the whole Bible, full of grace and truth. Now go down to verse 17. He does it again. <clears throat> the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came to us through Jesus. So let's follow the train of thought here. <clears throat> when God handles conflicts, when God handles conflict, He speaks Jesus. Jesus is the spoken word by God, and he enters the most fundamental part of the conflict. The word was made flesh. 
Then John tells us that the glory of Jesus as the Word made flesh is that he is full of grace and truth. Now, remember our Ph.D. Ivy League friend who goes on and on about conflict resolution. He has two essential counterparts, the issue and the relationship. Well, here's why I think he's onto something. Because every single issue is a truth claim, and at its source, every single relationship is built on grace and love, right? Speak the truth in love. Jesus is full of grace and truth. He's onto something at the deepest level possible, sociological, anthropological, theological, right? He's onto something at the deepest possible level. <clears throat> so here's a, que- here's a question for you. Look, look at the board. This is, this is what we have to think about. Where does God fall on the conflict resolution chart? He doesn't fall below the midline. He doesn't fall above the midline. Look, here's the deal. God doesn't have to sacrifice either. Jesus is not 50% grace. He is not 50% truth. God always deals with the issue, and he always preserves the relationship. This is the gospel, guys, right? Hey, look, look, look. Did Jesus die for your sins, the issue, or did he die to bring you to God, the relationship? Yes, the issue and the relationship, grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. And the pun's very intended. God doesn't have to sacrifice either, but grace and truth came to be sacrificed for you so that the decisive and eternal conflict would be resolved. Here's what you have to feel. When you enter into conflict and you open your mouth to use words in conflict, the clarity and life-changing power of the gospel is at stake A gentle answer turns away wrath. Jesus is the gentle answer, full of grace and truth. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. This this has nothing to do with who wins the next round of family drama or workplace competition. This is about us feeling our constant need for the grace and truth of Jesus to flood all of the friction in our life, to energize all of the words we use in that friction, and the grace and truth of Jesus to be the source of all of our hope and all of our peace when the mountain of conflict seems too tall to climb alone. That's what we're talking about. So practically, I need this every single day. And depending on where I'm leaning or which way I'm falling, if if I lean towards the truth side of things, if if I lean that way, I need the Colossians 4. Hey, hey, hey. Let your speech always be seasoned with grace that it would edify. And I need to speak kindness and compassion and mercy into my relationships because it's not my native tongue. But if I'm, if I'm leaning towards the grace side of things, like if that's you, if you lean towards the grace side of things, and look, and you're scared <clears throat> to make a move towards the midline because you think picking sides might offend somebody else, if that's you, you have to trust Jesus that the truth will set you free. I tell you right now, if you don't speak about an issue directly, if you lean towards the grace side of things and you don't speak towards an issue directly, you might be, without knowing, stockpiling anger and bitterness for later, and it might come to get you later. We have to have both of these, brothers and sisters. And no matter where you are on this chart, no matter where you fall, let's say it like this. No matter which way you lean, listening, or excuse me, learning to speak words of grace and truth is how we submit all of our conflicts to God. Learning to speak words of grace and truth is how we submit all of our conflicts to God. 
It takes two legs to walk on the tightrope of healthy biblical conflict resolution that points to Jesus. One leg is grace and the other leg is truth. Here's what I mean. Grace words are not self-seeking and self-promoting. Grace words are restorative and encouraging. Truth words are not gossip words and slander words just in the name of the facts. No. Truth words seek the common good to build up the other. Grace words are not flattering and people-pleasing and dismissive. They are hospitable and relational and thankful. Truth words are not harsh, abusive, mocking, or divisive. They are willing, willing to put to death lies and cynicism. Grace words do not lead to manipulation or deception. They lead to life and to trust and to understanding. Truth words are not cutting or controlling or fault-finding. They reject blame and they avoid words like always and never. So, when your dad says one thing, his words say one thing, and he does another, and you know that you have to go talk to him about it, do not go in guns blazing. You enter the conversation thinking about walking on the tightrope with the two legs of grace and truth. <clears throat> when your coworker is, is trying to like cheat the system at work for their own gain, you don't start the gossip train hoping that they're going to get caught, <clears throat> hoping that they're going to get busted. You approach them and try to use words of grace and truth. When she just keeps going <clears throat> and she, she says something that, she shouldn't at community group, and you know that it's sowing death and not life. Your job is not to fix her. That's the Holy Spirit's job, and maybe he wants to use you to be an instrument. And so what you do is you beg God, give me the wisdom to speak the truth in love. Or when there's a family member that you're having supper with who is not a Christian, and they are just enumerating all the reasons why Christians are bigots with their head in the sand and da-da-da-da, and Christianity is so mean and oppressed, and all these things, what you do is you take a deep breath and you pray and you You go, Lord, give me words of grace and truth to steer the conversation to Jesus and not how a couple of his followers might act. This is a place of utter and total dependence where we need to speak like Jesus lived. Grace and truth words mean that just because you can win the argument doesn't mean you have to. You okay with that? Listen, grace and truth words mean that just because you can win the argument, you don't have to. They mean that you are willing to take time to patiently live the truth that you want them to see. Grace and truth words mean that you are willing to confess and repent of your sin before you hold them accountable to theirs. Grace and truth words mean that you can listen without rushing to defend yourself. That's my problem. Jesus is my defender. What are, I'm not trying to take his place on the cross. He did that for me. Grace and truth words mean that I can listen without rushing to defend myself. Healthy biblical conflict resolution might just look like cut and paste from Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. Do not be anxious about how you're supposed to speak or what you're supposed to say. For what you are supposed to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And whatever the spirit might give you to say Here's how you know it's going to be from the Spirit. If they are words of grace and truth. And most importantly, us living lives of grace and truth and speaking words of the same, it's only possible as we completely depend, as we cast ourselves 
on the mercy of Jesus as the source of grace and truth. He is God's speech in person. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Meaning, meaning Jesus is the word of life and light that has come to rescue us from the words of death and darkness spoken by the enemy. The word light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can't overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwells among us. God did not text us from afar. Jesus is not a great idea that's distant from us. He came to live among us as one of us to liberate us. He entered our mess and our pain to fix our words and our hearts behind them. Jesus showing up like he did is not about avoidance. It's not about competition. It's not about accommodation. It's not about compromise. It's about incarnation in the middle of our mess. He knows the greatest conflict in the universe, the conflict of sin and death, at the deepest possible level, better than we do. He passed through the fire of conflict for us at the cross, and that is what makes his love glorious. And we have seen his glory full of grace and truth, truth that points to the ugliness of our sin, grace that forgives it and welcomes us home, truth that declares that our sin deserves judgment, grace that takes judgment into himself. In Jesus, the issue is not dismissed and the relationship is not forsaken. He is the truth spoken in love. And here's the deal. If you look to that, if you believe that, if you trust that, if you depend on that, if you're focused on that, it'll change the way you talk and it'll change the words that are going and spinning in your heart, soul, mind, and chest. It can hush lies and quench fears and undo deception and silence condemnation and resist accusation and it can completely and totally resurrect our own language so that it is life to others. Jesus is God's word that should shape our words. And so for us, listen, the gospel is the ultimate word that we use. Why? Because the gospel is the spoken word that settles the most climactic con conflict in the entire universe. The word light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot, will not, overcome it or defeat it. The word wins. Fellowship Greenville, it's really, really good news that Jesus is God's communication with skin on. That's really good news. And because of his saving love and his example, I pray to God that we would be a church that talks like this, spilling over with words of grace and of truth. And I hope you want that too. And I hope that you are trusting Jesus for that this morning. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, our words are not idle and neutral. They have the opportunity to speak life. And so, Spirit, would you make Jesus himself the crucified and resurrected word, would you make him more and more beautiful to us so that speaking his grace and truth would become our native tongue? Please, please, Holy Spirit, do that. Give us a vision of Jesus as king that would shape all of our lives, especially the words we use. Jesus, because you're worthy of it. Spirit, do that in our hearts, please. Jesus, we love you. You're the best. Amen.